Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 84, Dr. William Valicella on Existence and God. Dr. William Valicella is the author of the book, A Paradigm Theory of Existence, Ontotheology Vindicated. He's also published numerous articles and book chapters in metaphysics and philosophy of religion. Since 2004, he has written one of the best philosophy blogs called Maverick Philosopher. In our previous discussion, we talked about being itself or the absolute, and we also talked about God, but I wonder how the two are related to one another. When you talk about the absolute, is that just another term for God? Well, of course, that's a, that's a very difficult question. It's discussed by the kinds of philosophers I like to read, like Bradley and Heidegger. For example, Heidegger's mantra is, das Sein ist kein Seiendes. So being is not itself a being. But God is, in a certain sense, a being. And so there's something farther back, as you like to say, or higher up than, than God, and that is being. But then the question is, what's the relation of being and the highest being? After I studied Husserl, that got me into Heidegger, and what fascinated me about Heidegger was the being question, trying to figure out just what on earth he was trying to get at there. So I worked out a critique of Heidegger in about six articles or so, which I published. And then uh, I thought, well, Heidegger has gone off the deep end here, and that somehow being is, in some sense, itself existent. He thinks of it as it's a kind of a transcendental space within which things are manifest to us. But it's, it itself has a certain sort of reality. So then I thought, well, maybe monism is the solution here. That got me into a, a monistic phase during the 80s. That's when I was getting into Advaita Vedanta. In 85, I was in Hawaii at the Institute for Comparative Philosophy, thanks to the largesse of the American taxpayer. It was a NEH-supported, uh, it wasn't a seminar, but an institute. So you can see what kind of a, a guy I am. I'm like, I'm all over the place. I've been to NEH seminars with Roderick Chisholm, who was certainly no mystic and a hardcore analytic philosopher, although he's, he's, he's into continental philosophy, Brentano. He didn't go from Brentano on to Husserl and Heidegger, of course, but... So I, I, spent a, I spent a summer with Chisholm at Brown and learned quite a bit from him. And then I spent a summer in 84 with Hector Castaneda at Indiana University, who's an atheist. I mean, Chisholm is kind of cagey. I mean, I think Chisholm was really a theist. I think Chisholm may have been kind of a closet Catholic, really. Really? Do you? Or at you least a closet. Do you have evidence that he was brought up Catholic? I think he was brought up Catholic, and at Brown I saw his library after he was deceased, and uh, I think he read some Aquinas every day, and he had well-marked-up copies of Aquinas, and even in his uh, final book that he wrote when he was very old, and I think kind of starting to decline, he does—it's a small book, it's not as famous, but I think he does accept the existence of something like God in that book, if I remember right. Well, he defends the immortality of the soul in a certain cagey kind of way. And he's open to God, I think. And he, he read people like Cardinal Mercier, and he read these old scholastic manuals. And, 
and he learned a lot from these people. But, you know, I mean, he's, uh, he's like at the top of the analytic East Coast establishment. So, you know, you can't, in those days, you know, planning out kind of opened things up later. But in those days, you didn't start talking about God or people would think you're kind of crazy or... So it was all kind of cagey, but I, th- I think he, he was a, some sort of a hidden theist or closet theist. Hector Castaneda, on the other hand, was an out-and-out atheist, but a systematic philosopher and a, and a student of uh, Sellers, and extremely creative and one of the most generous guys I've ever met. And he would just, yeah, you could send him a paper and he'd just scribble all over. He would fill it up with comments. and So I learned a lot of analytic philosophy from him. And then, you know, I followed that up the next summer after the summer of 84 in uh, Indiana with Hector. I uh, then went to Hawaii to the Institute for Comparative Philosophy. And now these guys are all mushheads compared to like, you know, Hector Castaneda and, and Chisholm, who are top analytic types. And I, I value analytic rigor and clarity. But still, I, it, during that time, I, I, I read a lot of the uh, Eastern material. So I was a monist for a while. I was, I was going, I started writing a book called Awareness in Existence, and I was trying to think that there's no individual self, there's this transcendental self, and I was trying to work that out, and I ran into so many problems with it, I abandoned that. I got tons of big, fat manuscripts, but it's all just laying in, in, in the dust. Just for people who aren't familiar with it, could you just briefly explain what Advaita Vedanta Hinduism is? Well, it's non-dualistic Vedanta. It's an extreme monism in which uh, monism ontologically would be the, the doctrine that there is one principle, Atman, is Brahman. Atman is something like consciousness or self, and Brahman is more like the objective pole of that. And the world is the manifestation of Brahman. The trouble with it is, is that, you know, the Advaita Vedantins would say things like, we don't explain the world, we explain it away. So, and they'd say things like, the, the phenomenal world is a dream or is an illusion. Now, that's preposterous, though. That can't be right. So I, I toyed with that for a while, and I realized that can't be right. I mean, there's got to be a distinction between dream and, and, and reality within the phenomenal world. You could say that the phenomenal world is dreamlike, but you couldn't say it's a dream. So this extreme monism went out the window. I went from Heidegger, you know, so being is not a being, to the other kind of pole where being is the one being. And then I went from there to starting to think about a moderate monism. What Heidegger decries is ontotheology. I wanted to defend that against Heidegger on the one hand, and also against the Fragians on the other hand. So that got me into a position that's more like Thomas Aquinas. What I did with this book on existence was I tried to figure out, well, what exactly is existence? There's no critique of the phenomenological approach to being in that book, because I'd already written articles on that. And I wanted to write a book that was more analytic, and the analytic types don't read Heidegger. Or, you know, they, or they read it a little bit, or they try, to, they try to have Heidegger without being, which is absurd. But I studied German. I was in Germany in the 70s and learned German, and I, you know, I studied these. I was in Freiburg, in fact, and I studied with some of the students of Heidegger, and I worked in the Husserl archive. So I, I was into that tradition, and I knew how it worked. So then on the book on existence, what I did is I, I dealt mainly with the, uh, the logical approach to existence in Frege, Russell, Quine, and realized that this is uh, untenable, in my view, even though it's the dominant view.
If you look at re- most recent things on my blog, I got a review of Fanyan uh, Wagen's latest collection of essays called Existence, and he's a kind of a Quinian about existence, and I reject that completely. Can you just say a little bit more about this common approach to the topic of existence that you reject? It's an attempt to work out a completely deflationary account of, of existence. I mean, that existence is a purely logical concept. So existence reduces to sumness. You could sum it up like that. So in other words, to say that an individual exists is just to say that for some x, x is identical to a. So a exists says nothing more than for some x, x is identical to a. If you analyze for some x, x is identical to a, what do you find? Well, you find the particular quantifier. Calling it an existential quantifier is completely question-begging. Quine said that existence is what existential quantification expresses. I reject that completely. It's a particular quantifier as opposed to a universal quantifier. And so if you say A exists, says nothing more than for some X, X is identical to A, then on the right-hand side of that definition, you have just that's found in first-order predicate logic with identity. You have the identity sign, you have the quantifier, and you have the variable that's part of the quantifier, and then you have the variable that's bound by the quantifier. So this is just not at all a theory or explanation of existence in your view. It's, it's almost impossible to get somebody to understand it that doesn't have my intuition of what existence is. I mean, existence is what makes a thing be and not be nothing. See the pounding there is for emphasis, right? I mean, either you see it or you don't. Things exist, and they might not have existed. They're there. They're not nothing. To say that A exists means only that for some x, x is identical to A, presupposes that you're quantifying over existing things. So you've given no account of existence at all. You've just presupposed, you just beg the question. You've presupposed that there are existing things. I want to know what it is for something to exist. If you tell me for something to exist is for it to be identical to something, what are you saying? You're saying it's, it's for it to exist is for it to be self-identical. But if it's identical to something, it's identical to itself. What else would it be identical to, right? So for Socrates to exist is for Socrates to be identical to something, to some X. And what would that be? It would be Socrates. So you're saying that to exist for Socrates is to be self-identical? But then if, if the existence of Socrates is his self-identity, then given that he exists, how can he cease to exist? Isn't he then a necessary existent? Because you might think that statements about identity are necessary truths. Right. If existence is self-identity, then uh, it's impossible that a thing be self-diverse, right? So in your view, to understand a statement that such and such exists, something needs to be said about existence or being and how, it's, how this thing is related to it? Is that right? You can think of it this way. On the Frankian approach, existence is kicked up to the level of a second-order predicate. So you say horses exist, what you're saying is the concept of horse is instantiated. So you're not really talking about horses anymore. You're talking about the concept, and you're saying that concept is instantiated. And it seems like the subject has been changed. Yeah. You see, it works for general existentials. Like a general existential would be like a sentence of the form, Fs exist. A singular existential would be a sentence of the form, A exists. So let's say I want to analyze horses exist. Then you could say horses exist means that something is a horse, which you take that to mean that the concept horse is instantiated. 
But now if the concept horse is instantiated, it has to be instantiated by something, right? Some individual? Now think of that individual, Harry the horse. Does Harry exist or not? Let's say we, we want to get rid of existence as a topic of metaphysics and have it only as a topic of logic. So we say, to say that horses exist is to say the concept horse is instantiated. And that's right. I'm not denying the truth of that biconditional. But you're saying that biconditional does not at all explain existence or say what it is to exist. Right, because, okay, suppose that the concept horse is instantiated. It has to be instantiated by something, some individual. If it's a first-level concept, then if it's instantiated, it's instantiated by an individual, right? Now, ask yourself this question. Is that individual, does it exist or not? It's going to have to exist. Right, because if you said it doesn't exist, then you break the link between existence and instantiation. If A, that instantiates Fness, were a Meinongian non-existent object, then you would break the link between existence and instantiation. If A must exist, when I say must exist, I'm not saying it necessarily exists, but if it's necessarily the case that a concept is instantiated, then it's instantiated by something that exists, then you're brought back to the question of what it is for that individual to exist, which is a question about singular existence. Now you've just moved in a circle. You, you wanted to say what existence is. See, existence is pre-thematically the existence of individual things. But you've tried to kick it upstairs to the level of concepts, but then you're brought back down to the level of individuals. And so you're still left with the question of what is it for an individual to exist? But a person might think that the concept of existence is basic, like it can't really be explicated in any way or analyzed. But in your view, it does need to be explicated. Is that right? Well, yeah. Well, of course, I'm not talking about the concept of existence. I'm talking about existence itself. Concepts, as I, as I use the word concept, a concept is a, is a mental item. It's something that is, well, what's a concept? I mean, you could, you could approach concepts dispositionally. I mean, I have the concept cat if I'm able to classify certain things as cats or not. Then you could say I have that concept. Or it could be something, a current, when I think of that concept cat and think of its definition. Concept then refers us always back to a mind. So we could say no minds, no concepts. So I'm not talking about the concept of existence. I'm talking about existence itself. One view somebody could take, well, existence itself is just existing things. But I say, no, those existing things have something in common, namely, they all exist. Okay, then what is existence as that which is common to those existing things? And I don't assume that I know what common means, except that it's a datum, is it not, that there's a plurality of existing things? Would you agree that there's a plurality of existing things? Yeah. Especially if you, if you reject Advaita Vedanta, then clearly the world we live in is a plural world. And I reject Meinong too. So we have a plurality of, of existing things. 
it doesn't matter how you count them or we can go into questions of counting and how we distinguish but but i mean this pen is an existing thing and this table is an existing thing and every part of this pen is an existing thing so you have a plurality of existing things but they all exist and each one of those existence is such that it might not have existed yeah that seems right i mean all of that seems undeniable but take the pen and its existence a person might say I understand this thing's existence. I understand that this pen and this table are alike in the respect that both of them exist. But if I understand your view about existence, you think that both the table and the pen need to be related to existence, where existence isn't a particular thing. Isn't that right? It's kind of something more fundamental than, than right, any... Right. Like existence is that which makes individual existing things exist. When Heidegger distinguishes being from beings, you could say, what is being? Well, being is that which makes beings be. Maybe we shouldn't talk about Heidegger because muddies the water. There is that which existence ha- existing things have in common, and that is existence. And then the question is, what is that? Some would say it's a property, but clearly existence can't be a property of, it can't be any kind of ordinary property of existing things. So in other words, I'm not rejecting Frege, Russell, Quine, and the boys, and to go back to a a view that existence is a property like any other property. Clearly the existence of a thing is not a property like like its it's, uh, so-called ordinary properties. Why not? Why not say that? Why not say it's a property that everything has? Well, certainly not a quidditative property. What's the difference between an existing X and an X? It's not a difference in terms of some uh, wetness, some property that picks out what it is, either as an essential property or an accidental property. Your existence couldn't be identified with your being a human being. And it also couldn't be identified with your being uh, bearded, which is accidental. So now somebody might say, well, the existence of Dale Tuggy is just Dale Tuggy. But I have a whole chapter on why I reject that. I'm just flattered that you have a whole chapter in your book about Dale Tuggy. Yeah, yeah, well, he's, a, he's, a, he's an excellent example of something that exists. <laughs> So we've talked about the absolute, we've talked about being itself. Now, what about God? If someone says, do you believe in God and should I believe in God? What would you say to them? This is a question, if we take it a little broader, you could say, what inclines me to religious belief? Religious belief is not quite the same as belief that God exists or belief in God. And of course, believing that God exists is not the same as believing in God, since believing in God involves a richer attitude of maybe trust or reliance or something. But let me talk about religious belief and what inclines me to it. Now, a lot of this I discuss on my blog and in in many different posts, but let me just try to sum it up. I mean, first of all, some of us have a religious disposition and some don't. And that's just a, a brute fact. Now, if somebody doesn't have a religious disposition, then you can't really talk about religion with them. 
because then it's just a lot of abstract stuff and it doesn't resonate with it. It's like trying to talk about music with the tone deaf or colors with the color blind or poetry with people that don't have any understanding of it or appreciation of it. So I would say, first of all, I just have that disposition. Then, but that by itself doesn't prove much because you could say, well, that's just some kind of aberration that some people have this religious disposition and they're inclined to, uh, to believe in an unseen order beyond the human horizon populated by things like the god of Aquinas. So you need some kind of argument. Well, I would say this. Let's define naturalism the way Armstrong does. It's a nice, clean, simple definition. Naturalism is the view, it's the ontological thesis that the whole of reality is exhausted by the space-time system and its contents. That's one way you could define the ontological thesis of naturalism. And I suppose uh, naturalism completely unproblematic. You could answer in a satisfactory manner every philosophical question as a naturalist then I would think there would be little reason to go beyond that and believe in God or anything transcendent of the natural order. There would still be the mystical experiences, the religious experiences, the paranormal experiences, the arguments for theism, but they would not have much purchase if naturalism were true. I mean, if naturalism were totally satisfactory in explaining everything that it would have to explain. For example, it has to explain intentionality. It has to explain sentience. It has to explain self-consciousness and self-reference. It has to explain reason. It has to, to explain normativity in all its forms. Did I mention conscience? It has to explain all of this. Now, it can't even explain one of those things. I mean, there's no decent explanation of intentionality by any naturalist, which is why some naturalists become eliminativists, which is totally crazy. I mean, then you're denying the very datum that you need to explain. The eliminative materialists are very interesting characters they're, because their position, although a lunatic position, is very interesting as a foil against which to measure plausible theories. But you can see why they're driven to it. They see that, like, uh, there's a guy by the name of Alexander Rosenberg, you know, he, he just denies that there is, as I recall, he denies there is, any, there is intentionality. So if mental states don't fit into physics, then they just deny that there are mental states. That sophist Daniel Dennett actually goes so far as to deny the existence of consciousness. Like there are people that think consciousness is an illusion, which is any sophomore can refute that. I mean, the, the very distinction between illusion and reality presupposes consciousness. So your attitude about naturalism is, yes, there is a physical world, it is real, we can have knowledge of it, and so if naturalism seemed to explain everything that we know about that needed explaining, that would be really neat. But as a matter of fact, you think that naturalistic philosophy is an abject failure. Right. I mean, what can it, does, can it explain why there is anything contingent at all? You know, you could say, why is there something rather than nothing? But that's not the right way to formulate it. What, I think it's necessarily the case that there has to be something. I argue this on my blog. There has to be at least something, even if it's only an abstract object but I won't go into that. So let's formulate the question this way. Why is there anything contingent at all? Naturalism can't explain that. How did life arise from abiotic or inanimate matter? Can naturalism explain that? Not that I know of. How did consciousness arise in some living organisms? Well, it can't even explain consciousness, so it's not going to explain how it can arise. Dennett tries with his fancy footwork, some, he tries to build some kind of a gradualist bridge between matter and consciousness. I don't, none of that is compelling. 
How does it explain self-consciousness, intentionality, conscience, reason, normativity? Like, you know, Victor Ruppert, he's big on the argument from reason for God. Well, you know, reason is, is something that distinguishes us. I mean, how are you going to give an, an account of, of reason in naturalistic terms? It's like trying to give a, an account of your thought processes in terms of physics. So here's what I'm saying is if naturalism fails, and it does spectacularly fail in all these ways, you can still have that kind of faith commitment in it and say, well, we're just going to keep working on it. You know, I, I don't want to stop anybody from doing that. And in fact, I invite them to keep working on it because they're going to fail, and the more they fail, the better it is for me. So let them work as hard as they can to, to show that naturalism can explain all these things. But since they haven't done it, as long as they can't pull it off, it's reasonable to reject it. So you start with my religious disposition, you st then you go to the failures of naturalism, and then on top of that you have all these experiences that people have which point beyond the natural world. Mystical experiences, religious experiences, various kinds of paranormal experiences. Now a lot of that is probably non-veridical, but some of it, I would, that has to be examined, right? So there you have an, a whole bunch of evidence that there is something beyond the natural order. And then you've got the arguments for theism. Like planning, it says there are about 20 arguments. Yeah, that's about right. So there's about 20 arguments. And if he, these can be articulated very rigorously. And they together make a, a huge cumulative case for theism. Now there are arguments on the other side, of course, like the argument from evil is very, very strong. But that can be answered. So you have the arguments for theism, and you have the, the, the refutations of the, of the atheist arguments, and you add that to the, all these experiences, mystical, religious, paranormal, and the failure of naturalism, and then this is what makes religious belief rational. The capstone is this. Suppose I live in a, if I live in this way, like let's say I just go back to the Catholic Church, and, or any kind of church, or live your kind of way, like you... You accept the Ten Commandments. You may be a Unitarian. You may be deny the divinity of Christ, but you're still a theist, and you follow the Ten Commandments. And in doing that, you know, that prevents you from having sex with as many women as possible. For the record, I am a Christian. Yeah. Keep going. Well, okay, but you deny the divinity of Christ, right? I don't accept the Catholic speculations on that subject, oh, no. Okay, so now let's say Dale Tuggy being a good philosopher and having a religious disposition and seeing the failures of naturalism and perhaps having some mystical religious and paranormal experiences, which I won't get into since it's a personal sort of thing, and being able to present the arguments for theism and all their rigor and being able to refute the argument from evil and whatever other arguments there are. Now, let's say he lives his life in this way and then he dies and he becomes nothing. All right, what has he lost? You've had a good life. But on the other hand, I don't want to go into Pascal's wager because I don't think that's the right way to set this up, but it's something like that. I mean, pragmatically speaking, you've lived a good life. 
this life has nothing to offer us, really, ultimately speaking. So if you live in the expectation and hope that there's something beyond this life and you prepare for that, then that seems like a very wise thing to do. And suppose there is no life beyond this life, then you still live to as good a life as you could live. When I say it doesn't has anything to offer us, I mean, if you threw yourself into every sensual pleasure, that would not lead to a good life, even in a naturalist perspective. So if I understand you, you're saying that, well, my beliefs are one thing, and uh, I do think there are some grounds to believe in God, but even if I wasn't sure about those, it seems like there are practical reasons to believe in God and to live as if there's a God. Is that accurate? Well, let me say first that I don't think, you see, some people like our mutual friend, Ed Fazer, the amazing Ed Fazer, I don't know how he does it with all his teaching and all his writing of books and giving of talks. If I understand him, he thinks that the theistic proofs that Aquinas gives actually prove the existence of God. I would deny that. I don't think you can prove anything of a substantive nature in philosophy, theology, or any controversial area, because I have a very rigorous notion of proof. So I don't think you can prove the existence of God. So there are no rationally compelling arguments for it, but there are arguments that make it rationally acceptable. So I'm willing to grant to an atheist that his atheism is, is rationally acceptable to some degree for considerations of evil and whatever. But, you know, you can only philosophize from your own point of view. So, I mean, if I have these mystical experiences, they clinch it, you know. I mean, if you've ever had a, an experience of having a prayer answered... Now, I'm not talking about some mundane thing, about you playing, you're praying for some mundane benefit. I'm talking about praying that you be released from a very vexatious frame of mind that you happen to get into because of some dispute with somebody or, or whatever. One time I found myself in a very uh, vexed state of mind, and I simply spontaneously, without any forethought whatsoever, without saying, well, I'm not going to pray, I just suddenly threw my arms up to the ceiling toward the ceiling and said, release me. I became as quiet as the quietest quietest. I became like, I was in a state of ataraxia instantly. Peace descended upon me. Now, what does that prove? Well, it doesn't prove anything. Like, like I just said, you can't prove anything. I can't even prove that you're sitting in front of me. This could be a coherent dream. The dream argument of Descartes is actually very powerful. But even though I can't prove it, that's pretty good evidence that there's something beyond the merely human. So you could ask, well, what if, well, that was a brain fart, or that was auto-suggestion. Okay, I'm going to investigate that, but it's hard to argue with an experience. Just like right now, I don't doubt at all that you're sitting in front of me. And as we were hiking, we stumbled upon an interesting point. If I have an experience only once in a while, the fact that it only occurs once in a while is not a good reason to think that it can't be veridical. Was that, didn't we come to that conclusion? Yeah, that seems right. Just the fact that an experience is unusual is not a defeater for that experience as evidence. That's one way to put it. Right, because given our fallen state, of course if I say our state is fallen, then I'm assuming some, something that the naturalist will, will reject, but man's being a fallen being is uh, about as close to an empirical fact as any religious dogma is ever going to get, right? I mean, if I uh, am out hiking and I suddenly hear from the sky, Dale, repent of your sins, I mean, like, audibly hear it. I've never had an experience anything remotely like that before, but, I mean, if it was a clear, strong experience, and, and I have no evidence that I've been taking drugs or I've been up for three days straight or I'm going crazy, 
Why wouldn't I accept that it really happened? Well, let's say a plane flew by and it, had a, it, it was trailing a sign and it said, repent of your sins. It didn't say Dale, Tuggy, social security number, such and such. But just, it just said, repent of your sins. You, you were thinking about your sins. You know, like Wittgenstein, he thought about logic and his sins, whereas Russell only thought about logic. But so you're thinking about your sins as you're hiking along and this plane goes by and, and is trailing this banner, repent of your sins. You would just take that to be a coincidence, right? It could depend on the circumstances. I mean, if I was just praying, oh, God, give me a sign, and then all of a sudden there's this sign, a literal sign, flying through the air that tells me what I really ought, I know that I, I ought to do. It's possible I could interpret that. That, that. could be a sign, but I'm talking about a, a deep in, inner experience. It's not like a, a visual. It's not like you're seeing, seeing something in the external world. I'm, I'm talking about... You're in a in a vexed like this when this prayer was answered, the vexed mo- emotional state I was in instantly dissipated. But that could happen with a with a. I mean, if I was uh, really agonized at that particular moment, and in fact I really did need to repent of some big sin, I might be thunderstruck at seeing this silly airplane flying by. It might. I mean, it might have a. Uh, it might bring me to my knees. I guess what I'm saying is. We can't give up our critical faculties when it comes to these experiences. I'm obviously not saying, well, you know, accept any kind of unusual experience. They have to be sifted. In fact, if you read the mystic literature in all traditions, I think, although I don't know every tradition well, but I think in all the mystical traditions, they have criteria whereby they, they try to determine whether the experiences are, are veridical or not. If you believe in God, then you believe in a purely spiritual being. But if you believe in a purely spiritual being, what's to stop you from believing in uh, purely spiritual uh, creatures like angels and demons, too? Yeah, and all those traditions, I think, acknowledge that a person might sort of gin up their own experience just out of a desperate desire to experience right. something unusual. Right, especially, you know, in the 60s, there was this big thing about experience. A lot of the 60s guys, we were out for experience. That's why we took drugs in part. And, you know... You mentioned Jimi Hendrix the other day. You know, his band was called the Jimi Hendrix Experience. And he had his song, Are You Experienced? So in this whole culture now, we, we want experiences, but clearly that's a, that's a mistake. I mean, what you, what you should strive for is the, the object of the experience. By object, I don't just mean the in, merely intentional object, but the reality that's out there that's pointed to by the experience. If you pursue experience the way Hendrix and uh, Jim Morrison of the Doors and uh, Janis Joplin, Janis jo- if you pursue experience the way they, they did, then you join the the Twenty Seven Club. You end up dead at twenty seven. Yeah, well, that's more just kind of hitting the pleasure button repeatedly because you don't know what else to do with yourself. Bill, thanks for talking with us. Very welcome. This week's thinking music is Adam, Are You Free? by Pipe Choir. The link for that tune is on the blog post for this podcast episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. 
Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love Him, in part, by thinking hard about Him. After all, it was Jesus who said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.